Ladies and gentlemen, runners and shamblers, and the rest of you lovely lot, welcome to the Movie Morgue, the Movie Autopsy Podcast. I'm your host, Silvio Emery. And I'm Annie Neller. And today we are covering the 2002 British horror film, 28 Days Later. Ooh, that's a, that's a fun one. It's a fun title. It's a fun title card. So, uh, we are having some scheduling stuff this week on, and we wanted to find one that we could bang out kind of quick. And uh, Annie, you lit the fuck up when I mentioned this one. So, um, why don't you tell yes, us a little bit I about did. why that is? I watched 28 Days Later a long time ago. I think it was when I was in college. And (sighs) there's just something about this movie that's so compelling. I I really like the cinematography, the story, the characters in this. It's just a very different take on zombie lore. And we've had sort of like a proliferation of all these different... uh, you know, zombie media, I guess I'll call it. There's whole genres surrounding this. And I just think this is a particularly original take on that storyline. But you were interested too. So when when have you seen this before? And um, I'm like, why did you want to watch? It turns out I have not, actually. Oh, really? Um, yeah, oh, that's I exciting. Thought, I thought I had. Okay. Um, it turns okay. out I've seen 28 weeks later. Weeks like, later. three or four yeah. times. Um, okay. And I, I had just assumed that I had seen 28 Days Later at some point. Okay. Um, but I kn- I, I've seen a lot of discussion about it, and I've talked about kind of its effects in the horror genre with friends. And I kind of assumed I had seen it at some point. It's one of those things that kind of bleeds together. Because, like, even 28 weeks is still pretty lo-fi. Yeah, it is very much so. And, like... It's one of those things that just kind of bleeds into your brain. So I haven't, I hadn't actually seen this movie before today, um, but a lot of it felt very familiar, and a lot of what came out of it, uh, I had already seen discussed. But even so, the reason I brought this up is because um, the last four or five episodes we've been looking at have been fairly light or funny fare, and so I wanted to mix things up and throw something a little bit grim, a little bit harrowing in. And I was just looking on Netflix for stuff, and you know, some zombie stuff was coming, and then just like. 28 days later. Got to do it. And, like, I was willing to keep looking on. I think uh, The Witch was on the plate at that time. But with your reaction, I'm just like, actually, no, you know what? We're going with what we're enthusiastic about. We're having fun with this. And it's going to be 28 days later. Well, and that's not to say that I don't love The Witch. Because I absolutely do. I love The Witch. I love Annihilation. Like, those are two of, I think, A24's most interesting projects. But we can talk about those... Maybe a little bit closer toward the fall. Like, this project seemed a little bit more immediate to me, and I like that. But yeah, so this is actually... I, and I think before we get into discussing the film, we need to talk about kind of its place in the zombie film history. Because, yeah, I mean, I'd say there were a few quintessential zombie movies. Um, a genre-defining titans. And let's see, you've got um, Romero obviously yeah you got some very old black and white stuff that i couldn't name but you probably could white zombie is probably what you're thinking about and that's sort of like the original iteration of zombie lore yeah and if i had to cut it down to three i'd say 28 days later yeah um because this is because i think romero was what early 80s yeah early 80s late 70s 
um, White Zombie is way earlier, and 28 Days like Later kind of sets the tone for the post-millennium zombie. Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, no, because that the thing is, when, the, when 28 Days came out, uh, around 2002, so around the time of 9-11, because that will come up in conversation. Constantly. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, they're, no kidding. Um, around that time, zombies were kind of tired old hat. I think the biggest zombie franchise at the time was probably Resident Evil, and that wasn't a movie franchise yet. That was just a video game uh. franchise, and that was known for, you know, shamblers and so on. And they had a variety of other zombies that would get mixed in, you know, uh, lickers and hunters and crap like that, and, you know, stars! So, <laughs> zombies by yeah. themselves... They've existed so long in our cultural memory that we kind of have this pragmatic approach to them is, oh, you know, don't get bitten. Uh, if you get bitten, tell your friends, get ready to put a bullet in your own brain. You know, stuff like that is, you know, you have plans, you have all these things just, you know, oh, walk at a brisk pace and they'll you'll be fine. You know, we have this cultural and they're not scary anymore. And 28 Days Later really invigorated the formula again. And pave the way for shit like you know the walking dead and other stuff yeah absolutely so it's a very important film it is a very important film and i think too part of what's interesting about the genre of monster fiction in general because zombies do fit within that uh is that the monster changes over time and that's because the monster is a cultural monster it's about our fears our anxieties policing norms and boundaries so you know like what was scary in 1932 in white zombie which is explicitly about policing racial boundaries uh that's not so much where the dread lies anymore um the dread in this movie is something a bit different and i i think that that's part of what makes the zombie genre so fascinating is that you can kind of trace over time these different cultural fears and anxieties that the zombie um, yeah. narratives are kind of trying to work out. Definitely. So, like, here's... And I'm going to qualify. This is a quick Google result just for the sake of discussion. This is not a curated list, and this is certainly not our list. But I just searched best zombie films, and the first ten results are Dawn of the Dead, Shaun of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, okay. 28 Days Later, Zombieland, Day of the Dead, Dead Snow, 28 Weeks Later, Dead Alive, and Resident Evil. Okay. There's okay. only two that are significantly later than 28 Days Later. Yeah. Uh, one of which is a sequel to it is like, among zombie... World War Z is later in the thing, but that's a different approach. And I think one of the big things that kind of define 28 Days Later, the kind of made zombies scary again is looking at it kind of from a pragmat through a different lens i think it recontextualizes yeah. things because it looked at zombies not as monsters but as a pathogen right. yep and that yeah. i think is the scariest thing about this movie is because absolutely and i think it get becomes weirdly i think it becomes scarier over time because yeah. over time that you know, the threat of bioweapons, the different... Like, just look in the last decade. You know, we've had chicken flu, swine flu. Um, Zika. God. Zika, Ebola breakouts. We've got fucking mumps on the rise thanks to the vaccine, anti-vaxxers, you know. The idea yeah. of a biological pathogen is fucking terrifying. And it's something that 
today more than 2002, I think is closer to reality and closer to something we actually live with the fear of than it was back then. Yeah, actually, that was something that I was thinking about while watching this, because one of the things that I was starting to realize is that my emotional reaction to the movie was very much like, I almost feel like this is real life for us, or it's, you know, like maybe one step away from where we are now. And so it's, it's the threat has become more proximate. And I think that's also what makes us scary, as well as the... um, There's a sort of home movie footage feel to this movie that I think also gives it a sort of immediacy and also really firmly grounds it in the everyday or the quotidian. So, yeah. yeah. So let's um, let's review this one. Let's give this a letter grade. Uh, Annie, if you want to go first. I think I'm going to go ahead and give this an A. Um, I think that... The reason why I'm giving it an A uh, is not necessarily because of enjoyment, which we've mentioned before, but I think the cinematography in this, the performances, the writing, and the color palette of this film all work together to create this kind of very smooth and also very disturbing movie. This is A material. How did you feel about this, though? I'm actually think I'm going to go ahead and give this one an A plus. And uh, there's a couple reasons for that. Um, I'm sure that if I watch this several times, I could find some minor quibbles to go with, uh, you know, some plots and so on. But as a whole cohesive product, it has an aesthetic and it has a daring originality to it that while many have imitated, I don't think anyone's quite captured the same fire. Um... And part of it, I think, is also just the grounding of it. I think we've had other shows that have had these extensive big scenes of emptiness and desolation, but none of them, I think, have quite managed to capture the reality. And that's part of, I think, what is brilliant about this film is, you know, they literally stopped London streets for, like, 45-minute segments to get, like, quick shots. And it's London. Yeah, it's, it's just... London. It's a living city that has been stopped. And that is part of it, because I think we have some of these settings in other movies, and I'm not going to name names, mostly because I'm not the biggest zombie buff, but where I've seen, you know, dead cities that are just dead. Um, what I see when I look at London in this uh, in this uh, movie is I see a London that is stopped. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Um One thing that went around uh, on Imgur recently is someone was posting stuff about a game they had made, and part of it was that they had built a house that um, they had modeled a realistic, you know, normal house, and they let the players inhabit and explore that house before the fucked up shit happens, so that you've been in this normal bedroom, and by the time you come back and there's inverted crosses hanging from the ceiling, you know that something has changed, and you know that it's wrong. It's not just a place in a movie. And that's a reality that's very present in this film because this is filmed in real houses on real streets. They've put up props and they've done some work on them, but these are still real locations and no, no soundstage will ever quite capture that unless it's done with like, you know, Kubrickian dedication. And actually that is the other thing I think that also works for it because this is lo-fi, they avoid some of the things that 
studios have to do to cover their own asses, which take away from the reality. In particular, um, what I think is great is there's an entire team of graphic designers who work on every single movie. And what they do is they make fake newspapers, fake posters, fake stuff. So there's nothing in there that's actionable that people can sue for having their product or their brand or their trademark or their copyright on your screen without their not written <laughs> consent. Yep. And that costs money. And that's some of the things that you, can, you can't get unless you have a certain amount of budget. But once you have that budget, you need to cover your fucking ass. So... Like, aside from a newspaper, I can't think of anything that, like, felt fake or wasn't a real advertisement or sign or anything. No, and I'm especially thinking of that first sequence where we are shown all of these different videos of cases of extreme violence and, you know, rioting, uh, in some cases, a couple of murders that are taking place during a riot. Like, all of that looked very real to me. So real that I was, in fact, thinking, what is this taken from? Like, is this taken from, you know, stuff that's gone on in the States, in the UK, across the globe? Like, what were they pulling from? I don't know. Was that stuff, was that real? Because it looked real. I'm pretty sure it's real. Because the thing is, the way I'm looking at it is to hire extras to record that footage would like triple their budget from what I'm looking at and to get good takes like it it felt like news footage like we've seen a lot of horrifying violence in the last couple of years and we have an idea for what the aesthetics of real filmed violence is there's a certain there's a je ne sais quoi to it and like I hate to use the term but (laughs) you know je ne sais quoi of violence yeah that's a great album name by the way (laughs) No, but like, you know, there's a certain thing to it. There's an unsteadiness to the camera work. There is both a fascination and an aversion to it. And I feel like I'm romanticizing the journalistic camera a little bit too much here. But, you know, this is part of found footage. This is part of the the aesthetics of a film like this versus, you know, World War Z, where everything's on a steady cam or shot from a very steady helicopter, you know? Oh, yeah, there's the more that I watched this movie and saw the shaky cam and the the almost homemade feel to the footage, the more that mainstream kind of like big budget zombie horror felt oddly sterile to me, which is weird because it's a genre that's really all about contamination. Yeah, like, I mean, this movie is just so much more interesting than that. And it is partly because of the camera work. Yeah, well, one of the things that they did is, and this, I think, was revolutionary back in 2002, is they actually used DSLRs for large parts of the shooting because the big Hollywood cameras were too cumbersome for the purposes that they needed them for and couldn't be set up quickly for, like, a five-minute shot because they had to block off traffic and set up the stage. Apparently, the scene where they go past a tipped-over double-decker bus, they shot that in 20 minutes, and then they put the bus back on its feet. (laughs) That's hilarious. Now, keep in mind, there's probably someone who's a much more studious uh, scholar of zombie film than I, who is probably going to tell me that all this is wrong and actually it was 15 minutes or actually it was 25 minutes. And I apologize to them. If they want to come on and issue some corrections, please do. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. We'd love to have you on to actually talk about this stuff. Like, we really enjoy it. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) and I think that's a key concept here. I'm going to borrow a term from game design. Okay. Okay. have you ever heard the phrase ludonarrative dissonance? 
I've heard ludonarrative, but not necessarily dissonance, so do tell. Okay, so ludonarrative dissonance is this jarring sensation that is described in game design where what you are doing and the story that is being told are completely different. So if you're playing, for example, an action game, but the protagonist is like, I don't want to kill people. I don't want to go back to that life. But you as a player are going, yeah, let's kill some motherfuckers. Then, you know, what you are doing and the odds of and the character and the story that is trying to be told are at odds, right? A prime example is Grand Theft Auto 4, where the protagonist is Nico Bellic, who is a Eastern European man who comes from a war-torn country of unspecified origin and is trying to find a new life away from the violence of his past. Whereas you, as the player, are there to steal cars, shoot people, etc., etc., etc. So that's ludonarrative distance. And what a term that I've come to like a lot in discussion is ludonarrative conceit. And that is one thing where I think this film does very well, is it is a lo-fi movie shot kind of desperately and haphazardly and ragtaggedly. And that that way it is being made is in alignment with the conceit of the film and the narrative that they are pushing. So, I think you could do a Hollywood, you know, $50 million budget 28 days later, and it would look better, and it would be a worse film. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Uh, Because one of the things that I really liked is, in a lot of the ways, actually, a lot of the performances were kind of bad. And, like, well, let let me explain. Let me explain. Explain, yeah. Why? Because one part of it is that this is a very British film, right? A lot uh, of people... Well, yeah. 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 And the thing is, the sound quality is not that... It's not... Like, we've been doing a little bit of audio engineering in the last year, in case you guys haven't noticed. <laughs> and the sound isn't that clean, and it's not that sterile. Yeah. And yeah. it feels like it. a lot of it is, you know... Um, is it's not studio sound it's um what's the word i'm looking for live sound recording sound footage sound yeah something yeah like that. um but also these don't sound like actors in a weird way um because especially i think a great point of contrast is eccleston because this is after wait is this after or before doctor who Oh, I'd have to actually look that up. No, that was 2005. Oh, okay. so this is before. Yeah, so this is before Eccleston was the doctor. And when you compare Yikes. kind of the way he intonates and, you know, the way he kind of pursues melodrama in Doctor Who, it's very different. When I see Christopher Eccleston in this film, there are some great subtleties and nuances to his performance. He did a great job. But also, he just kind of sounds like a bloke, which is to say that in Hollywood filmmaking and in a lot of filmmaking, we make this effort to dis- to elevate things from reality. People speak a certain way in Hollywood. People speak a certain way on Broadchurch. And we kind uh, of get yeah. none of that. These feel like regular people in a way that people on The Walking Dead don't. You know, just look at Daryl fucking Dixon. Does he sound like does he sound like you think some guy does on a bar? Like, no. 
No, I mean, he sounds like a guy who is a Prada model trying to sound like a guy who's at the bar, at least to me. But also, and one of the things that I wanted to add about Chris Eccleston's performance in this is that he's also adopted this very specific form of British accent that is drawing upon both um, both Shakespeare and also these sorts of like British sword and sandal type dramas uh, that specifically focus on the Romans. And I think sonically, that is a very interesting thing to draw upon because he's really... That's him adopting not just the language of empire itself, but the actual sound of empire, the sound of a Roman emperor as played by a British person. That was kind of what I got out of it. Um, Like, he sounds like a guy from Ealing Studios from, like, the 1940s at some points. It's very, it's a very consciously adopted accent to me. So, but I mean, that's also my own personal perspective on what I saw, so... Yeah, no. So, um, yeah, we, we've kind of accidentally bled into mechanics, but we, we were very excited yeah. to talk about this film. Oh, yeah. And it's where we were going anyway, so I'm not too bothered by it. Yeah. Um, And I, I guess if I'm going to give a movie an A+, I have to justify it with some mechanical deets. Um, the other thing that I really liked is, and here's the thing, the angle of... It, it's one of those things where I feel like it's difficult to examine a, a seminal work. Particularly the longer you go out from it and the more that's been built upon it. Um, because just from that Best Zombie list, uh, Zombieland was on there, which is directly influenced by this film. They had runner zombies. You know, runners and shamblers. So... One of the things... That I think, so first of all, to explicitly approach this from the biohazard angle, from the, and a lot of the visual language used is also the language of, you know, not just a biological outbreak, but like a biological weapon outbreak. Um, one piece of imagery that really struck me as jumping out is the, um, I think it was 91, there was a, I think it was a sarin gas attack in Tokyo? Yes, there was, yeah. And I don't know why I think of that specifically. I've seen, I think, pictures and some news clipping from the same time, but there's that sense of panic and there's a stillness that falls over a city in places like that. Um, Where there's this bewilderment and there's this confusion, and that's the big thing. I think that this movie also does well is there is confusion and there is ambiguity and there is uncertainty because the number one sin in a Hollywood film is to have your audience not understand what's going on. And like, I don't want it to seem like I'm saying that this movie just happened to be in the right place in the right time. Cause it isn't, it's Danny Boyle. It's brilliantly done. But there is an element of it trying to be something that no one else had... I'm not going to say that no one else had ever tried to be, but that no one else had ever really pulled off with the same degree of success. Uh, Yeah, and you know what? I actually am going to say, too, on top of Boyle's, you know, creativity, 
I do think there's an element of time to this as well. Like, I think that this did come at the right moment and, you know, that like that's part of why it works. Another thing this was making me think of were the uh, 7-7 bombings on the tube. Oh, yeah. And uh, that that was two years, uh, two, oh my goodness, that would have been four years after this was filmed and like two years after it was released. But yeah. so, you know, so, like there's a lot of things happening around the time this film is being released. So when we do current movies, I try to avoid the critical discussion to kind of examine things on my own merits. Um but that's a little difficult to do with this one because this is something that I've talked about with other people, something that I've known by reputation for many years. And so I wasn't as afraid to dig in a little bit uh, before I watched this. Um, but one thing that surprised me and I think actually probably contributes to its place in history is it, it did okay in Britain. It was a surprising success in America. And... One of the details, one of the um, stories, one of the anecdotes that comes from this film is the director, because they they made this, and the film was originally set, I think, during October 2001. Yes. Um, but they kind of improved or came up with or designed the poster board with all the missing posters. And I think it was Danny Boyle saying how kind of chilling it was to see that same imagery come out of 9-11. And, like, I think... We talk about 9-11 in film a lot, and I, th I think we kind of can't avoid it because it is an event that defined a generation and will define generations to come. We're still feeling the aftershocks of it. But I think that is probably a significant factor for it. Like, without, you know, going to every film goer and, not, and back with a time machine and saying, did you see this, this, and this? Were you thinking about 9-11 during it? You know, we can't say that definitively. But to me, it makes sense, you know? Yeah, and I don't know that we would even need to go to people, right? Like, 9-11 has become a cornerstone event. Like, it is an event around which a lot of us have formed our identities, uh, our memories. Like, even if you ask people who were born in the 1990s whether they remember 9-11, uh, and I'm specifically thinking of, like, 1999 or 1998, where they would have definitely been too young to fully remember it. They have these fully formed memories of this time that are very much shaped by other people's memories of the time. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's unavoidable. It's almost like totalizing, and it's shaped not just our memories, but the memories of people who were kids at the time who shouldn't have remembered it, but now do through us. Yeah, and also... The language of the biological weapon was very prominent in the years directly after 9-11. Um, there was a lot of, you know, it it, it kick-started and gave like a, it poured gasoline on the prepper movement. But this idea of being prepared for attacks from various ways, remember the discussion. The language uh, when we invaded, um, I believe it was Iraq, was uh, weapons of mass destruction, right? That was Lord, Iraq, right? yeah. Uh, I think so. Yeah, because that's the language. It's not developing nuclear weapons. It was weapons of mass destruction. That was a whole broad category that included uh, yeah, biological, biological weapons. weapons. Um, there was a lot of talks. There was big anthrax scares. Um, there was talks about weaponizing polio. There was talks about 
uh, smallpox. Like that's been part of the conversation of the plausible 20 minutes into the future apocalypse for a very long time. And I think that was in overdrive in the years directly after 9-11 and still is, I think, to a lesser degree. Now we've kind of settled into a homeostasis of paranoia, but it's it's less it's less of an unknown. It's more of a pragmatic, you know, I've lived with this all my life, whatever. It's it's more the kids in the Cold War getting under their desk and then drill. I think that's the kind of the state we've reached now. Well, but, and I think, too, because 9-11, because of the imagery of 9-11 itself, this was an event that had a lot of people really feeling and thinking about the idea of apocalypse. And I think that's also part of the reason why we see this resurgence in films where substantial portions of the human population are decimated. It, yeah, it, there's a kind of apocalyptic a cinema apocalypto, if you will, that results from 9-11. Cinema apocalypto, another great band name. Man, we're just hashing them out today. Just feel free. If you are a Norwegian metal band, please feel free to steal the names that we have come up with. Or, or, swing jazz. Swing jazz. You would cinema listen to us. Cinema apocalypto? I would, I would. Yeah, I know, you fucking would. So let's let's talk about performances in this, because if we keep go- like we're, I think, way too deep in the deep dives already. I want to actually talk about the film and not just what it represents. I do want to actually engage with the <laughs> yeah. text to a certain degree. <laughs> well, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so okay. I want to actually start with the intro, because one thought that I had, um, because I I watched this film a little bit later than Annie did. We're actually recording like half an hour late. It's my fault. I'm so sorry. Um, but <laughs> I, I basically live tweeted to her while I was watching. And one of the things I said was. This is the best title card of all time. And that might be a little bit hyperbolic, but I'm until someone has a counterexample, I'm going to stick with it. Because what it is, the in, and one thing that I forgot is I love how high concept and how kind of efficient the intro is. Because it tells us where the disease came from, but no one from that entire scenario has anything to do with the rest of the film. They are just the genesis of the seed. Whereas you look at something like Planet of the Apes, and it's like, well, yes, the monkey that gave every other monkey the brain gas was Caesar, who had a personal relationship with a man who made the drug. No, it's just chimp bit a girl, it got out. 28 days later, we've got these losers. Um, And the title card doesn't look like a title card, and that blows my mind. It's just 28 days later. It looks like a stage direction. It looks like a to-be-continued box. And it also shows up twice, and I love that. Well, because I think what that title implies is that we've entered the story in Medias Race, um, which is to say we've entered the story in the middle of the story. Uh, the apocalypse has basically already happened. And I, from the bat, I really, really like that. I love ancient Greek tragedy, and I love ancient Greek like epic poetry and that's oftentimes where you also enter the story there so you know like it's this lo-fi low-budget zombie film but it has this real sense of like classical writing to it I don't know how else to explain that and it it gives it this air of a a sort of Greco-Roman tragedy to it I just I absolutely love that well one of the things that I like about the writing in this film is there are 
some very harsh absolutes. And I think this is part of to what ties, I think, into this idea of melodrama that you seem to be buying on. Because one weird thing is, this is, I think, a melodramatic plot with a subdued naturalistic acting. Because when you look at, like, you know, Shakespearean or Roman tragedies and comedies, it's often, there's stuff like, you know, you have bespoiled my daughter, thus I declare an undying vengeance upon you for the rest of time. You get that kind of shit, right? And there's this certain mm-hmm. kind of pompous, old-timey, na- this naturally melodramatic language that that tends to be framed in. But with this film, I feel like you get all these extremes of emotion without yeah. kind of the construct or the artifice of melodrama. So when Mark gets mm. infected, you don't have, you know... yeah. My Mark, what is that upon thine arm? Tis nothing, tis but a scratch. You don't get that. You just get the exchange of looks. And okay, that's she, our favorite. By the way, can we just, you and me, let's just rewrite this as a Shakespearean tragedy. I think this could be great. Can, can we rewrite this and have like a bunch of people read it? Oh my gosh, yes. that would be No, amazing. for I hath woken, and I know not what day it is. Wherefore art my nurses, mine handmaidens, my doctors fair? <laughs> Wherefore art thou a maintenance? For thine Pepsi machine doth be filthy. Dear Kenneth Branagh, please remake 28 Days Later in the style of your version of Hamlet. Um, Yeah, no, I think that's interesting that you bring that up. Like, a lot of Shakespearean stuff actually is written in the language of the common people, which is sort of juxtaposed with that fluid, florid prose that you're talking about. But yeah, there's a greater sense of the sort of like quotidian or everyday, like these feel like everyday actors to us. And what we have is we have these everyday people shoved into this circumstance where every single second is life or death. It It is the melodrama of circumstance and plot, but not of character. Um, so, like, look at, uh, Jim's parents. Um, we left you sleeping, now we're sleeping with you, don't wake up. It's, it's such, like, they killed themselves to escape hell. And they are normal-looking people in a normal-looking house, and they're terrifying. When- Can I- add on to that though too like they that suicide note is next to their rosary beads and one of the things that I noticed going on in this film early on with Killian Murphy's character is there is this discourse going on about religion in the church their tragedy if you look at it from a Catholic perspective is that they have killed themselves so they have not only killed themselves in this life but they've committed suicide, which is to potentially damn yourself in the next. So they would literally choose hell over what's going on in the world. Actually, now that you mention it, (laughs) the scene where hell is revealed to him is in a church. It is sanctuary perverted. So it starts there. Well, and also, like, let's also keep into context here. Killian Murphy is an Irish character in this, and who is the first person to attack him but a priest? So... You know, I think there's also this thing going on sort of outside the movie where people are talking about the Magdalene laundries around this time. So there is kind of like that historical context there. But yeah, you're right. It's a perverted sanctuary. And also it's a perversion of the role of the priest that is wholly believable for us in this world. It's deeply tragic. 
Yeah. Um, the other thing for Irish folks. that I want to mention specifically with the church and with the idea of sanctuary is yeah. it's not an inversion just in purpose, but there's also some yeah. very key aesthetic decisions. Um, oh, yeah. Because specifically, a church is something that is maintained. Um, mm-hmm. It is something that is generally empty except on certain occasions. Yeah. And it is something that is orderly and that is held. And the thing is, a wild church party is very tame. You know, a little bit of sacramental wine, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, let, I, I, if you, do you want to disagree with me on that one, or can I continue with the point? Oh, no, I think that's accurate. No. Um, <laughs> but also, there's a sense of propriety and so on. But when he comes into it, there are a pile of bodies in there. And also, there are people, infected people, but people, laying amongst them in squalor, basically. So if you really want to kind of mince words about it, you could call it like the remnants of a hedonistic orgy because it is. It's an orgy of violence. Oh, yeah. It's the literal term. Yeah. Is It is these violent maniacs who have sated their urges in a church and are laying there in the filth of their revelry. Damn. <laughs> yeah, that's... Yep. <laughs> and the vicar has joined them. Oh, God. Like, there's yeah. a lot to unpack in that scene. Oh, yeah. That's like old school horror. And I'm talking about, like, you know, 1600s, 1500s, Hieronymus Bosque painting horror to it. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Um, another example I want to bring up is um, Frank, played by Brendan Gleeson. Yeah. Because one of the most phenomenal scenes in this film is where he kind of loses his shit at the checkpoint and ends up getting a drop of infected blood in his eye. Now, I want to make a comparison. Because he tells his daughter, Hannah, to get away. He shouts at her, he tries, he yells at her, and eventually he attacks her. Now, I want to draw a direct parallel between that moment and White Fang. (laughs) okay all right because what you see here is this is kind of what i'm talking about with the melodrama or the i guess actual drama of these life and death decisions that are made in this film and that these characters are forced to go through with is in a single moment he he knows he is doomed he has mere moments of clarity left and he tells her i love you stay away from me stay and before he can even really finish that thought he is already angry and attacking, and he's already losing himself. Compare that to this kind of construct of drama where it's like, no, go, go away. I never loved you anyways. Throw a rock. (laughs) I'm sad. And you see where there is a similar core of drama, but it's the immediacy and the lack of intimacy to it that just kind of... There's a lack of construct. There's a lack of circumstance. Like, it feels wrong in a way that is very natural. It's messy. Like, if you've ever had a breakup, if you have ever had to tell someone that, you know, a loved one has passed away, like, these are not pretty neatly packaged moments. The camera doesn't cut away to watch them leaping. It's like, you have to deal with denial and grief. There's all this stuff, and these things get processed so quickly or so slowly, you can never control or understand them. And... We get a sense of that. I think this is just 
brilliantly done because, and this is what I mean, is the narrative conceit of this film is beautiful. That, you know, Mark's death, we see that he's bleeding, we see that he's denying it, and we see that he's afraid that because he knows it's true. And, my God, like, Selena just loses her shit on him. And it's the most terrifying fucking thing. Yeah, it is terrifying. And it's terrifying because Selena's kind of set up for us as the de facto leader of the group and also the person with the most experience with the rage virus. So to kind of watch her come apart at the seams is really, it's sad and it's scary. And I think that's one of the things that I really actually like about this film is that it affords the character of Selena a lot of humanity. It allows her to be a person with feelings. And, um, you know, there we've talked previously on the podcast about just how pejorative and prescriptive a lot of roles for black women in Hollywood are. And one of the things that's cool about the character of Selena is that she doesn't necessarily fall into this uh, strong black woman archetype. It's this archetype that black women have to be strong all the time, and they're also always strong for other people. They're givers. Nothing is given to them. Um, They always have to be rational and calm and hold it together, and they're always doing stuff for other people, and that's a very confining archetype. So what I really liked about this character of Selena, um, you know, from the writing is this sort of shift in worldview that we see in the movie, you know, like she goes from being a sort of like pragmatic nihilist at the beginning, which is understandable to, you know, somebody who is searching for community and trust after the apocalypse, which that's a pretty epic story in itself. And then on top of that, we have Naomi Harris's performance, which just works so flawlessly because she has so much acting range. She can do humor and carry off a joke very well, just as well as she can do those scenes where she really makes us feel the fear and sadness and apprehension. Like in that scene with Jim where she's talking about Hannah and her fear that, you know, Hannah is going to have most of her life focused on survival, not thriving, and that sucks. And I just, that was really cool to me. It was cool to see a black woman character who is written as a human being, you know, with fears and humor and the ability to change over time. I think that's great. Um, Because that actually was something that came to mind as I was watching this film is there is a sense of, I think, pragmatic nihilism, Um, particularly when look at how they introduce Jim to the new world is there is no government, there is no army, there is no nothing. There is no t- there's no radio, there's no TV, there's no nothing. All these institutions that you believe in that have supported you your entire life are gone. God is dead and we have to fend for ourselves. That is their introductory speech. And we move away from that over the course of the film. But where they start and where they stay for a lot of the movie is this place of absolute morbidity. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's a brilliant performance by her. And I think Killian Murphy was someone that we wanted to talk about as well. Because you were saying that as the movie went on, he goes from being this kind of interesting character aesthetically to being very bland. 
Yeah, um, and I think what that kind of taps into is this idea of, how do I say this? The aesthetics of control, to a certain degree. Um, because when he comes to, he's really, he's completely unshaven, he's got these big sideburns, he's got this kind of, you know, bit of a rangy mop on top, and he's this kind of visually compelling character. But the second they get to shelter, and he gets to, you know, he gets to shave and have a haircut and put himself together, um, he looks much less unique and much less interesting. That is not to say that he looks worse. I think he's... It's, he's it's Killian Murphy. Like, he, yeah, he, he doesn't have an unhandsome face. But he's, he's less visually distinctive after that point. And part of that, and I think this ties into some of the thematics of the film, is because who do we run into later? Military guys, crew cuts, clean shaven... When, when actually also, does he shave? Is that when they're at the military base? Because I remember him shaving, but I don't remember when that happens in the plot. That was when they met... Um, that's Frank when and they his met daughter? Frank and Hannah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, when they stayed at the apartment. Um, the other thing is... Because there's a couple things that go on with this haircut. It's actually way more significant than I initially thought. Because, first of all, there's that parallel to the military guys. There's also a direct contrast with the zombies, or the infected, because especially when you look at the one who's in the base, he was one of the military men, but he's unshaven and crazed, and he's, you know, kind of mangy. So you've got that, and all the zombies are, because the zombies don't groom. That's another weirdly interesting parallel to very old forms of theater like in Japanese kabuki theater and also in ancient Roman drama um, unshaven unkempt bodies are an indication of evil and kind of like this idea of the lack of quote-unquote civilization yeah that's really fascinating so Annie let me blow you away with something else do it (laughs) at the same time that he shaves and he cleans up yeah is also the first time intimate relations are brought up within the context of survival and the zombie apocalypse. Oh. Are you and her together? Because, oh. you know. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not fucking mentioned before that. Yeah. And what happens later? We get this, you know, fucking survivalist breeder bullshit oh, going yeah, on. Yeah, that was so. Disturbing. Also with the fucking crew cutted, jackbooted thugs. Right. Yeah. And also, the only dissident from the military group is, I forget, I didn't, I didn't remember his name, but it's the guy who's got the five o'clock shadow. Mm. Because oh. everyone else is younger and more clean cut. Eccleston's a little bit older than the rest of them, but he's well shaven. Yeah. This guy, full, full beard shadow. Oh, yeah. On. Not quite a beard, but he's definitely hairier than anyone else on the complex. <laughs> I think there's a couple who even are unshaven, but they've got, like, that scraggly pube beard going on. I think we should just talk about facial hair in zombie movies, and that should be our... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome glory. to the top ten beards in zombie films. <laughs> number, z- number negative a thousand, Jesse Eisenberg. Ah. Uh, Eisenberg. Sorry, Jesse. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's all a very so... good point, though. Yeah. What else did you have? Yeah. No, that was kind of where I was going with okay. that. I'm, I, okay. I, I'm 
No, no, because I, I like that. I think that's really, really interesting, and it's not something that I've seen pointed out for this movie before. No, no, that that is the limit to my my thoughts on the cultural plot significance of Jim's hair. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Well, okay, no, there's one last thing. All right. But this is more this is more to do with <laughs> this is more to do with Killian Murphy than it is to do with anything else. Well, yeah. But um he does have a slight resemblance to Christopher Eccleston. Uh specifically in the cheekbones and kind of a little bit of facial structure. Yeah, and he's got the but that, line he becomes nose. Yeah. But that resemblance I think becomes much more prominent once he shaves and cleans up. One of the other things that I wanted to talk about very briefly, because I'm an art historian, so I'm just going to be painfully nerdy right now. I love the uh, the art that gets brought up in this movie. The setting in the mansion is just absolutely fascinating to me. I don't really know what's going on in that mural, but it's something that seems to harken back in this dinner scene where they have these candelabras lit to this kind of visual language of the divine right of kings and, um, you know, military despots and all that stuff. I, I thought that was really fascinating. The other thing that is really interesting in the mansion is the highlighting of a very famous uh, statue from, I believe, the Hellenistic period. Um, but maybe some of my friends could correct me if I'm wrong. It's a statue called Lauquin and his sons. And it's a white marble statue of this old man with a beard. He's getting kind of uh, tortured by snakes and his sons are being devoured as well. And that seemed to me to be a very interesting visual metaphor for the movie because the story of Lauquin is a story about a man who's trying to warn people about... Um, the Trojan War. He's trying to tell them secrets, and the gods punish him for doing so, and he and his sons are devoured. So it's very much an image about human suffering, and also secret knowledge, and the death of people who are arguably innocent. It's just a really compelling visual metaphor that's kind of like within the film itself, and I really dug that. Um, I mean, I can't comment too much on this one. Like, I've only seen this film the once. I thought I had seen it before, but I haven't. Um, but, I mean, I can't disagree or yeah. agree really with you at any point. Um, one thing I do want to talk about, though, is the aesthetics of the mansion itself. Yeah, let's do that. Um, because there are a couple things that it brings to mind, and also some scenes within it. Um, one... It's a very old house. This is, you know, a house on a hill in open grounds. It's very aristocratic. Yeah. Um, but it's also built in such a way that... I mean, I'm trying to think of parallels in other films. And one thing in particular is... I think the lobby reminds me a little bit of the lobby scene from... Not the lobby scene, but the um, the dual staircase in the Matrix sequels. Mm, okay, I can see that. You've got that kind of open sweepingness to it. Um, and we don't get to see too much of it, but the other thing I also like is there's this kind of segmentation and fragmentation to it where there are certain areas for certain things. You know, they've built up the barbed wire fences, they've militarized the complex to a little bit, but in particular, you have that little yard where they keep the one infected, the one guy that they got infected, where they've got him on a chain, and that area is... It's a laundry area, first of all. You've got linen sheets hanging there, but they're all bloodied up and so on. 
And in a weird way, it feels like a ghetto. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so you've got that. You've got the statues. But also, there is, I think, also, and I think this is, I'm not 100% sure on this, but it, it, it follows for me, is I think there is a separation of the upper and lower floors. Yes, there is. Because I think almost everything in the first half of that entire act of the film happens on the ground floor. The kitchens, people moving in, the cars, this discussion, all this military planning happens on the ground floor and the grounds. But once they, you know, start working with the ladies and trying to get them suitable to be bred and... Like, that's when they move upstairs and they start, I think, entering the domain of, I think, the master... And the place, the nobility, that's when they start engaging with kind of the push and pull and the oppression of a theo- of uh, an, aristoc- an aristocracy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's when they when go they to start the playing with the trappings of it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, in particular, I think what really kind of conjured that to mind for me was the image of Hannah... And Selena sitting on the couch in red gowns. Yes. Not just dresses, gowns. Yeah. And they're both sitting there and they're kind of reposed in such a way as to be like almost disinterested. I mean, they are. They, they're, they're not doting on anyone. They're, there's a very complicated relationship going on there with them and their captors. Because at this point, they're, they're captors. They're no longer their co-survivalists and so on. But it reminds me of... I don't remember the specific art moment, but there was a particular painting and a particular model that was seen as being, I think, almost scandalous at the time. And Annie, you can probably back me up on this one um, or clarify for me. Um, but there was one because she looked directly at the canvas. She looked directly at the painter and models were not supposed to do so before that point in time. It was seen as being very intimate. I think you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, so let's talk about two things there. One, the color red. Red is the color of lust, passion, lost innocence, blood, war, and violence. So all of those things are being invoked in that color of dress in that scene. Two, I think the painting that you're talking about is probably Manet's Olympia. And people may not recognize the title, but you've likely seen it. It's a painting of a very pale nude French woman who's reclining on a couch, and she's looking out at us, the viewer. Behind her, there is a young black woman who is presenting her with flowers. And historians think that this uh, young black woman was probably her servant and that the woman who's reclining on the couch is positioned as a sex worker based on the way the image is laid out. So uh, they think that because this woman is gazing out at us, the viewer. And these are two very different historical circumstances, the circumstance under which the painting was made and under which this film was made. But I think what we can say here is that there's a conversation being had in this film about women being subjected to a violent male gaze, because that's what's happening in that scene. They have been dressed up to make them look sexy and pretty, and note they've dressed up a teenager to make her look sexy and pretty so they can get her pregnant, as well as this young black woman too. So this is really a scene about the violence of the male gaze and specifically a white male and state sanctioned gaze. And then on top of that, how these women are finding 
any means they can to resist. Yeah, I think that is the one I am thinking of. But um, th- th- there's that knowledge of that painting and also having seen many classical paintings, you know, in person or through books or through the internet or through film. And there is definitely a lack of direct contact with the medium. There's a lack of breaking the fourth wall. There is a lack of acknowledgement that there is someone be- viewing them particularly. And that scene, that shot, evokes that old-timey painting feeling in me. Oh, yeah. You know what? I actually know what scene you're talking about, too. Because I think there's also a painting behind them. And, you know, I can't identify this work. I'm not an expert in English painting by any means. But it definitely looks like a Joshua Reynolds portrait or something a bit later probably and it's of this noble woman in a white gown and that's juxtaposed with these two young women in red dresses so you know red being the color of a lack of innocence of uh sexual knowledge but also worldly knowledge to a certain extent too you know like you really get the feeling that these women have had so much stripped away from them in this scene and there is something disturbing about them attempting to fit these women into this role almost like the lady of the house type of role by putting dresses on them and but they're obviously going to be kept as sexual slaves which is really uh yeah so let's actually that's some meat that i wanted to dig into eventually like i don't want to but we've kind of have to but and we had a conversation about this is this trope and we, we were kind of, we were talking about Christopher Eccleston's performance, and we'll come back to that in a second. But, um, because what I said was, there's also a bit of social Darwinist in him. And what Annie, what you replied with Annie was this idea of trying to, you know, breed the people and continue society. And I'm like, no, that's not social Darwinism. That's like this kind of, and I think we called it like, um, what did we call it? Uh, socio something. Um, socio-survivalist, I think is what we Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't think quite n- names the trope per se, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, but because when when I say he was a social Darwinist, there's, I think, like one line that supports that. But the rest of it is just a vibe. Yeah. And I think I, I may have been conflating a few things with social Darwinism, unfortunately, because it was early in the morning. But yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that get conflated. And it's very much so like a, though, a perversion of the survival of the fittest type rhetoric. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. When we're talking about this, we're talking about this trope where, you know, um, the group of survivors go okay, um, who gets to breed with the women? The women have to breed because we have to continue on with the species. That's our job. That's kind of our moral obligation. Yeah. And what I think we kind of determine it comes down to, and this is obviously not for all cases or in all medium, this is a complicated topic that generally I think is not very often handled well. Yeah. But also... It's one of those things that's hard to separate because generally speaking, we're always looking at people who are not handling things well in a situation where they are way in over their depth. That being said, these people still fucking monsters. We'll get to that. But because what I think is really kind of gross about this trope Mm. is that it's it's never something 
that's done, I think, with any kind of actual practicality in mind. It's never something that's done with, okay, we've got a group of, you know, 200 survivors. We've got food and water locked down. The zombies are never going to get in here. Are we going to repopulate? Like, what's our plan? I don't know. Are we going to, like, it's never about, like, setting up, you know, um, daycares or shit like that. It's always this short term. We've got, like, less than 20 people. We don't have anywhere near a viable population. We don't even have survival locked down. But we need to start making babies now because... And I think what we kind of determined was this idea that it's about clinging to a promise of civilization as a continued thing. I'm also wondering, though, about this. Um, Because the infection itself, I think, is what's used as an excuse to do this thing, right? So they are putting these women into sexual slavery, and one of them is a teen. I think maybe part of what this is about also is that the infection itself is an excuse for the monstrous qualities in these men to come forward. It provides them with an excuse to do the things that they want to do, but that the mores of society would deem, you know, like an aberration or, you know, like something that is not acceptable, not legal, not moral. So I don't, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of what there, I feel is going it, on. It, it's complex because it's not one character doing it. No, it's multiple. There's a variety of people doing it. Um, one of the character, one of the military men, has a moral objection to it and sides with Jim. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets shot for it. Yeah. Um, there's there's a lot going on, and I think one thing that often comes up with this God fearing puritanical white Christian viewpoint. Yep. Now. That, that's going to be, that's a lot of buzzwords, and we'll explain what we mean by them in a second. <laughs> because this is something that we see very much in right-wing politics, in um, reactionary politics in general, is this idea that if the, that everyone is as monstrous as me. It's, um, there is a great, I think it's a Ricky Gervais routine. And Ricky Gervais has his own problems. But he's saying, like, no, I do rape all the people I want to. I do kill all the people I want to. And that number is zero. If that number is more than zero for you, get the fuck out of my society. And that's the thing, is this idea that, you know, we that, you know, morality comes from above. And it is society or religion or laws that forbid us from doing the things that we want to. And there are, I think, a scarily large, a much more, many more people than I would like to believe who hold that view that they are restrained, not moral. And that, you know, every accusation is a confession is, you know, oh, um, you know, you, you know, you get like, some of these like turf talk, these like trans, anti-trans, yeah. um, talking points where it's like, no, you just want to indoctrinate our children so that, you know, you can force them to be the gender that you want. And also like pedophilia. Shit. It's just yeah. like, okay, you're scared. If that's your first thought, you're fucked up. You're absolutely fucked up. Yeah. So now that you've mentioned this very particular contemporary history, it's making me think about the history of the UK in general and how the mansion kind of functions as a metaphor for the British empire. Um, you know, in sort of like the state after 
the empire has come to an end, right? It's a decaying mansion. It's a decaying fortress, Britain. Um, and you've already done sort of some of the heavy lifting for that metaphor before when you were talking about the different levels to the house. So we have the first level for the common people. The second level is where the banquet takes place. And it's, you know, kind of like the idea of the nobility. Um, and then also having mentioned the soldier who's chained up outside, um, that is a very specific form of violence to him. Um, and it kind of feels like a specific form of gendered violence as well. Like he, that's not just commenting upon um, segregation or ghettoization. I think that's a very direct statement about the dehumanization of this man. Like he is kept outside like a rabid dog chained to the wall. And yeah. And then, you know, Naomi Harris, her character has endured some very particular forms of gendered violence as well. Um, She's subjected to the threat of rape. She's placed in a very compromising position that will involve her being in sexual servitude. So um, it's a very bleak picture of, um, you know, Britain at the end of its empire, but not one that is unmerited. It's referencing these hidden histories, the sort of ghosted traumatic histories that we may not be able to fully articulate. That's one of the cool things about horror and fantasy and sci-fi is that these are spaces of immense possibility for us to talk about the historical past and present. But I think that's also something cool about this movie. You know, like there's a lot of different readings that you can do here. And and that's just yet another one of them. Yeah. Let me share a really fucked up thought I had um, during, during, while I was yeah. watching this. Is I would love slash hate to see a movie that combined 28 Days Later with The Purge. Yeah. Specifically. Because The Purge, I think, has some fascinating uh, social commentary on socioeconomics and race and exploitation by the powerful but one thing one line that stood up to me is there is no infection it's just people killing each other and the idea that you could make a great horror movie where there's this infection and there is no conclusive way to prove that you have it or that you don't have it especially not postmortem and you have this idea of being a marginalized member of society in a survivor camp and knowing that they're going to try and pin the infection on you. Oh, wow. Because that is also a parallel to real civil rights struggles that we face oh, right yeah. now. Um, Terry Crews yeah. um, came out about being sexually assaulted. And one of the narratives that was constantly thrown back is, why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you act like a real man? And what he said is, black men only get one chance. If he had assaulted that man, he would be out on his ass, he would be in jail. And that is a reality that we face. This is something that is happening with uh, transgender people at rallies or in, just in public spaces. People are assaulting them and then trying to provoke a reaction so they can push this, put this up there and say, look at these violent males who coming in, trying to come into our women's spaces. Oh my gosh. Is, that is a... Like, that is a real horror. And, like, because the thought I had while watching this was, I'm really surprised that we have, you know, Naomi Harris in this because, like, in America, you couldn't make this movie with a black female lead. 
yeah, no, this wouldn't have been possible in the States. Um, or at least she wouldn't have survived the end of the film had this have been made in the States. And the reason why I say that is because there is another film from 2002 that affords a black woman character quite a bit of agency and character development. And that's Queen of the Damned. But um, the character of Queen Akasha gets killed off in the end because she's tried to take too much power. So, and she also fits into, you know, a few tropes. We'll have to do that one sometime because it's a very interesting film. But yeah, no, um, the kinds of artistic choices that they're making in this movie would not have been possible had they tried to make it within the studio system in the U.S. during the early 2000s. The, because part of the reason that this needs to be a British film is the lack of weaponry, the lack of firearms. Because yeah. that is very characteristic of the American zombie movie. Yeah, very much so. Um, but I mean... So that's that's kind of what led me down yeah. that path. And like, honestly, I could... I'm not going to lie. I might try and write that script, like get some research done for that. But You like, totally should. I think that's a spectacular concept. I don't know if you've seen the trailer for the new Purge movie, but it does look like they attempt to tackle a, sort of a similar topic where um, black folks in this sort of like rundown, uh, like post-industrialized area are being... Uh, pursued by the people in the purge and like the government is spreading lies about them to say that they are attacking people so I think there's been an attempt to tackle yeah. it but I don't know we'll have to see when that one comes out yeah and I mean the the purge movies I initially dismissed yeah. them um, when the first one came out it's just like all crime is legal blah, blah, blah. whatever this this is stupid but what it has come down to and more and more as the films have come out is it's about this Basically, exploitation of the proletariat by the capitalist is, you know, it's a it's a microcosm of kind of some larger societal trends that we have that aren't necessary to the degree of murder, but are, you know, life and death stakes, our employment, our fucking Historically, though, they have been. Like, that's why race rap riots happened in St. Louis in, in 1917 and in Chicago in 1919, like, because of the exploitation of working class whites by their white bosses, they did truly terrible and atrocious things. And so I do think there's Yeah, they still yeah. do. I want to I want to clarify kind of my language yeah. there. The reason that I like I don't want to minimize the violence being done, but we have to distinguish physical and economic and social violence because using that language allows people to say, look, these people are exaggerating. Look, we haven't you know, killed any, like, we don't have slaves yeah, anymore, everything's yeah. fine. And it's a, it's a complicated thing to tackle. Oh, yeah. And so making that distinguish, like, yeah, it's like, yes, they have their boots to our throats, but they're not stabbing us, so we can't technically accuse them of stabbing us. Right, definitely now it's a lot, uh, sometimes it's different. It's, it's, it's kind of like that dumb argument that Jigsaw isn't a murderer. It's like, <laughs> yeah, he's a murderer. <laughs> Why? It's just, um, you know, we don't like to admit that they're holding all the strings. Yeah. Like, that is part of the thing is, I think, I remember when this movie came out, one of the kind of talking points in media is they're not zombies, they're infected. And that was a big point yeah. of distinction. Because to call it a zombie film, it's a zombie film. Let's, let's admit that right here and now. But part of it is, as a culture, zombie is such a loaded term. 
Well, and also I think by invoking the idea of the monster, it kind of, it's a form of dehumanization that enables viewers to think like, oh shit, how are they going to defeat this horde? Like these are zombies. They're, you know, like potentially, I don't know, undefeatable unless you cut their head off and all that stuff. But instead you're forced to think of these as people, as people who have simply been infected with a virus that makes them, you know, kind of hulk out. And so it's, it's not even letting us have the emotional distance that the word zombie confers to the person. So the other thing that I think is interesting about this is the horror of the zombie, I think classically, is that they are undying. You know, unless you destroy the brain or you have the voodoo incantation, you cannot stop a zombie from getting back up and coming after you. Um, that's why you think it when you think of like the the like when you think of a cartoon image of a zombie, like that plants versus zombies kind of zombie or that like paranormal zombie, you see them as green and decaying with limbs falling off because they've been coming after you forever. Like they will never stop. They are damaged. They are old. A lot of times they're rotten bodies in the ground. But I think classically that is part of the horror of a zombie is they are immensely difficult to stop just as yeah. individuals. Um, look at, I think it was Dawn of the Dead, the remake, where you had the one zombie that learned to fire oh, a weapon. Yeah. And that zombie was pursuing them the whole time. Is each individual zombie yeah. is scary. With the infected, each one is scary. Yes, they are fast and aggressive and scary, but they also die really easy. What is scary about them is their pervasiveness, mm. is how the yeah. horde. Because when you look at a situation with a horde of zombies in like a Romero flick, you're like, okay, we're going to build a bus with chainsaw slots on the sides. You know, we're going to plow through them. When you see a crowd of zombies in this movie, it is too late. You are overrun. Um, Just look at like Eccleston manages to make it back, but just barely. But you can see when he is left in the car uh, with the wires ripped out, and he, all the zombies, all the infected start piling up on him. He has a gun. He's a military man. He is in control and in charge. And even he can only kill so many. Um, one, I, one of, I think, the greatest lines in this movie is, I don't have any bullets, man. I don't have any bullets. It, don't leave me. I don't have any bullets. And you see the difference between um, Jim and between these soldiers is these soldiers are clinging to society. Whereas Jim is, I don't know what he's clinging to. He's clinging to people. He's clinging to survivalism. He's much more punk than they are. But they are, they've replaced one system with another. And that system has also failed. And this, I think, is also one of the most influential things about without 28 Days Later, you do not have The Walking Dead. Because one of the core conceits of The Walking Dead is that we are coming up after the apocalypse. I mean, look at how it starts. Um, you know, what's his name? I forget the name of the character. Rick Grimes. Rick Grimes wakes up from a coma after the zombie apocalypse has already established itself. Off the top of my head, all the zombie movies I can think of are during the zombie apocalypse. This movie is set after the apocalypse. And it is that paranoia of zombies being around, being an everyday facet of life and the kind of lifestyle changes that you have to make in order to survive. That's a core thing, at least in early seasons of The Walking Dead, where, you know, zombies are everywhere and they're like landmines because you can never deactivate them all. 
So I want to talk about Christopher Eccleston for a moment because there is a lot to his performance and we did kind of touch on it very, yeah. very briefly. But I do want to kind of give special motion to not special special mention to him um, because he's it initially seems like he's just playing this kind of boilerplate military guy. But there's actually a lot going on and there's a lot of literally subtle things. And ha- like I said, film is a collaborative me- medium. Um some of it comes from the actor. Some of it comes from the director. In some cases, actors give a lot more. In some cases, directors bring a lot out of actors. And I'm not going to say this is all from Eccleston or this is all from, you know, uh, Danny Boyle. But together, they create this very interesting character. And you get, because this was my first time seeing this movie. I thought I had seen it before. I hadn't. Um, but from the very first moment he shows up on screen... Something is off. Now, he, spe- he speaks in a very blokey kind of way. He's got, you know, his accent going on. And he's very friendly. He's very cordial. And he's apologetic. And he's nice. But there's something sinister about him. And this is another case, I think it reminds me a little bit of John Goodman in Ten Cloverfield Yeah, Lane, that's a very good comparison. Because he is a realistic yeah. monster. Because his monstrousness is his paternal nature. Uh, yeah. Um... And this is another one. This is a Marvel movie, basically. This is a movie about fathers. <laughs> but um, the way he touches Jim's head oh, in Lord. the yard is very paternal and in such a way that in the context of that scene, you know they don't have that relationship yet. So for him to assume a paternalistic relationship with someone is scary as shit. I think for me one of the things that really scared me about Chris Eccleston's character was again like it's drawn from the visuals because I'm such a visual person. Um, The way that the mansion is set up it looks almost like a uh, you know like mansions that were converted into field hospitals or staging bases for the RAF during World War II and then to see Chris Eccleston in this space where I don't I can't fully explain it because it wasn't just that gesture for me that he did with Jim. It was also, like, he seems to act like he owns this space. Like, he fills the space out with his presence. Again, I'm having trouble verbalizing it. And then he's got this very, like, Roman general's haircut. Like, he looks like Caracalla. Or, who was an emperor, obviously, but... Um, and all of that sort of combined together, I had this feeling of, oh, shit... You know, like, they have definitely found a scarier monster than even the zombies themselves, perhaps, here. Because it's in the guise of goodness. The other thing, the other scene I think that was really telling for me was the welcome feast. Oh, God, yeah, that gave me chills. Because... The, he, he he was very magnanimous. He was very... The ah, fact yes, that he was come dressed in his show. uniform. And, yes. Yeah. Um, the other thing is also... There's this kind of queering of the one soldier who was the cook and this expectation that, you know, the women would be natural cooks and they would assume those duties. But particularly, though, I think the detail that really kind of sets up his character arc, no, not character arc, that sets up his character is how capricious he becomes when oh, the eggs are yes. shit. Yeah. Because, like, he's, he's all jolly. And, like, there's even a little sense of, like, his kind of like I've seen Christopher Eccleston in a few things and he can do very jolly and there's just a hint of that until something displeases him 
And immediately it becomes about control. It becomes about domination. It becomes about hierarchy and it becomes about punishment. It's such a quick switch, but you can see the moment on his face when he tastes the eggs. Like He's like, oh, an omelet. Yay. Everyone's celebrating this omelet. We haven't had an omelet in 28 days. And then he has a bite. And he starts picking it out of his teeth. And his face is just like, it goes slack. Like, he was, he was yeah. great in this. Just absolutely. There's also a few scenes of him that are particularly amazing. Like, I think the dining room scene is wonderful. But there's also those shots in the rain toward the end of the film. That whole sequence filmed in the rain is absolutely stunningly gorgeous. Um, just some really beautiful shots. So if anybody decides to watch the movie after listening to us talk about it, pay special attention to that scene because it is something to behold. So another fun little detail that I love, and this is just a nerd, weird, like, I'm not much of a milsim guy. I'm not really into military details in something, but it was very refreshing to see a military unit in a film that is not wielding M16s or M4s or, you know, any kind of M4A1 carbines. They were wielding, and this is one of my favorite, they were wielding SA-80 assault rifles and LMGs. Standard? Which is the small arms for the 80s. It's a British assault rifle that was notoriously shitty. And I love it. But I, I love it because w- there was a book in my school library. Because, like, every school has that one kid who's like, oh, look at this book on military stuff. It's so cool. Because my dad was like that. My dad had a bunch of military books. And I remember there was a book in my school library that had specifically the SA-80 lined up and showed all the different configurations. And I just thought it was really cool. And I really like bullpup designs. So, like recognizing that it's just there's there's that shit gun that i think is kind of cool even though it's shit it's just kind of lovely um annie did you have anything you want to bring up because i do have something i think i kind of want to round yeah let's do that because i don't really have anything else okay um one thing that i actually really loved about this film is the way its narrative is structured there is no good ending in sight and by what I mean by that is there is no happy ending showing up. Until until the very moment that he looks up and sees a plane, there is no path to happiness. There is no end goal. And that is, I think, a brilliant ludonarrative conceit. Because when you are in this situation... There is no end goal. It's just about survival. It's just about one day after the other, one foot in front of the other. And that, in that way, the film, it's about two hours long. It's like an hour and 50. And without checking the timeline or having a watch and knowing the runtime, it's difficult to know when this film is going to end. And thus, it's difficult to know where this film is going to go. Um, in many zombie films, you have a clearly defined goal is, okay, we need to get on a boat and we get to this island where there will be no zombies. Or, you know, we need to get through this blockade. We need to, you know, get in this van and get onto the open road is we need to fulfill this short term objective and then we'll be okay. And none of their short term objectives give them safety or sucker. None of their none of them make things better for them up until the very end. So when we got to the military checkpoint, I was just like, it's, it's weird. The 
film hasn't been that. Oh no, there's no one at the military checkpoint. Oh no, these guys are all fucked up, but like they're the best chance of survival. What? Where do we go from here? I don't know what's going on. And so when you come to the military guys and they start going, well, you know, we're going to have to breed those girls eventually. Like, you're like, oh, fuck, where do we go from here? And so in a way, I feel like this film kind of holds you hostage because it does not have a typical, like, three-act structure. I, yeah. Yep. I mean, that's one of the things that I love about it. I like that you pointed that out because I didn't have the words to necessarily put that together. Like, I knew it started in in medias race, but not really any of that. Yeah, I think that's part of what helps to build this real sense of existential dread of, you know, the knowledge that this is not going to work out. There's almost a part of me, too, that resents Danny Boyle a little bit for giving them a happy ending, for, like, giving them an out at the end. Like, I think it's still left somewhat ambiguous, right? Because they are, like, they put hello on a field and then a plane flies over and discovers them, which suggests that, you know, quote-unquote civilization is rebuilding itself. Uh, that may not be the case, but that's what that end panel suggests. I don't know. I, I almost kind of wish he'd left it out, but. Yeah. I mean, the thing is there were alternate endings. Okay. So, um, you know, we didn't get that. Um, from what I'm reading here, um, there apparently weren't military guys involved, and they actually had to rescue Frank, but Jim had to sacrifice himself to give him a complete blood transfusion oh, or something okay. like that. Um, so, like, that was considered, and I... What I would like to see, I think, is just to cut out that kind of almost idyllic thing where they're in the farmlands yeah. at the end, and I think just having them drive off into the unknown. But I can see why they did what they did. And I'm not going to hold that against them. It's kind of like how when I look at um, Dark City, for example, I hold that movie in very high regard, even though the theatrical cut is shit because it starts with a narration that gives away the plot. And so it's a case of, I think, probably executive meddling or studio Mm. control because like this, this was a very indie movie, but it was still like a multi-million dollar movie and it was still guided by studios mm, to some degree. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And even so, what we did get, I feel, isn't necessarily a happy ending, yeah. quote unquote, so much as it is a I hopeful see. ending. Yeah, yeah, that's a better way to put it. Okay. Hmm. Oh, 28 days later. <laughs> but, and also, like... As far as they went, I really like that they did go another 28 days later. I, th- I just thought that was a I really actually, clever move. I d- also do like that they bookended the movie with that. Because there, there's something about it that makes yeah. it go from, you know, happening in the middle of the action to being unresolved action. And I think that works very well. Look, there is something that I absolutely love about yeah. a mirrored structure. And no, George Lucas, you did not pull it off. <laughs> Shut up. But... Um, one thing I love is to mirror an image or a phrase or some piece of a story or a piece of media at the end and beginning of a piece and have them have completely different context. Oh, yeah. And we do that with a title card. 28 days later, after the zombie shit, after Mm -hmm. the monkey shit, 28 days later, the world has gone to shit. They get out, they barely escape. 28 days later, there is hope is you get that same title card. It's the exact same title card. And 
you have completely different emotional context for both those moments. Another example of this that I want to bring up is my favorite song in any musical is Satisfied from Hamilton. And because what I love about that is the intro and the outro are the same. To the bride, to the groom, to the sister. And you have a completely different emotional context for each other. Because the first time it comes after, you know, helpless, after yes. And, you know, it's just to the bride, to the groom, to the sister who's always by your side. It's this hopeful, it's this celebratory thing. You see the face of it. And then when you get to the end, you see the emotional pain and the loss and the sacrifice behind it. And it makes you want to cry. It's kind of the inverse here. But that kind of structural mirroring is something I am absolutely gaga over. So, like, as far as happy, hopeful endings go, okay. I'm okay with it. And we did get a sequel to shows that shit is not <laughs> great. True. <laughs> Definitely yeah, gotta do the sequel point. So, yeah, I think that yeah. about wraps us up. All right. This has been the Movie Morgue, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I've been your host, Sylvia Emery. And I've been your co-host, Annie Neller. As always, our intro and outro music has been Trouble by Ipso Factopus, and you can find a link to their band camp in our show notes below. Also, if you all just want to, like, chat with us and hang out with us, please feel free to come check us out. We're on Discord. We're on Facebook. We've got a Facebook group that's been going on right now. Um, there's been a lot of morticians who have been posting about the movies they've been watching and we've also had a few people post reviews which has been awesome because that informs some of the choices we make during episodes so please keep doing that and also check out what those people have to say we also have a twitter account if you're watching something and you want to live tweet us uh feel free to add us at moviemorgcast also we have a new patreon account that's patreon slash double doc md because doc and i have new projects in the works for the coming year so Pop by, come chat with us, uh, follow us, subscribe to the podcast, and support us if you feel like it. We'll see you all next week for Mission Impossible Fallout, Henry Cavill's Mustache, Part 2.